Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. Support for the California Report comes from Paint Care. Now with 834 drop-off sites in California, where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. Stanford Healthcare, alerting listeners to the critical blood shortage in the area. Now is the time to donate blood and make a difference. Stanfordbloodcenter.org. And... Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute. Coming this fall, the launch of research vessel Falcor 2, advancing the frontiers of ocean science and exploration, on the web at schmidtocean.org. About 30 minutes off Highway 5 in the Central Valley, there's a town that's a vital part of California's history and of Black history in the U.S., It's called Allensworth, and it was founded as a kind of Black utopia back in 1908. It was self-governed by Black residents, and it had its own school, church, bank, debate society, and glee club. And for a while, Allensworth was thriving. The history shows a Black community that was prosperous, The history shows a community that was self-governed. They had elected officials here, a constable and a justice of the peace. No other black communities really had anything like that. They had a functioning general store, a drug and pharmacy store, a hotel that housed travelers and transient business people. It was a shining example of black self-sufficiency and prosperity. The town was founded by Alan Allensworth, who was born into enslavement in Kentucky. He fled slavery and became a Union soldier and later a minister and educator. He was the first African-American to reach the rank of lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army. And when he came to California, he had this vision for a place where... African-Americans would settle upon the bare desert and cause it to blossom as a rose. These days, though, Allensworth is a dusty, tiny farmworker town that's struggling to survive. There are few jobs or businesses, the drinking water isn't safe, and the state park built to commemorate Black history, hardly anyone visits or even knows about it. People don't understand the importance of Allensworth and the fact that it's a state park. But if you visit it today, it's at best a ghost town. How to preserve Allensworth's history and legacy is something that's come up in meetings of California's Reparations Task Force. That's the nine-member body investigating the lingering effects of slavery. They're coming up with proposals for how to address historical inequities for Black Californians. I think the state has a debt of obligation to make this facility whole and also educate the rest of California of the importance of this town that was founded by a African-American colonel who served this country. 
It's the California Report Magazine. I'm Sasha Koka. Today on our show, we're going to hear from two reporters who spent months digging into what happened to Allensworth. Because of oppression and the meanness of a racist society, that community was never realized. They'll introduce us to some of today's Allensworth residents fighting to preserve the town's history and its future. We'll also hear how water plays a vital role in the town's survival. Water is one thing you cannot live without. But if it's not clean, potable water, then you might as well be without. But first, we're going to take a train ride with Lakshmi Sarah, who's been covering the reparations task force for KQED. Maxine Butler is the first person I meet on the train. We board in Emeryville, near Oakland, for the four-and-a-half-hour ride to Colonel Allensworth State Park for the Juneteenth Festival. I help her with her bags and her walker, and soon she's offering me fruit and we're sharing stories and songs. This train is bound for glory, this train. Maxine, who's now 70 and lives in North Oakland, told me her sister-in-law's family moved from Arkansas to Allensworth in the 1930s. Escaping the lynchings, escaping the after effects of slavery. And they probably heard about this Jerusalem, this promised land called Allensworth. For Maxine, the journey to Allensworth is important for another reason. Doctors gave her a terminal diagnosis just days before. She's been battling metastatic cancer. They said she has six months to live. And I have my bucket list, and and this is on the bucket list, to go to Allensworth. I felt honored to help document a part of her bucket list. Maxine comes from a long line of pioneering black families. My grandfather, Charles Nicholas Moore Sr., was the first African-American streetcar conductor in the state of Massachusetts. But Maxine is disappointed that so many of these kinds of pioneers aren't well known, especially when it comes to Allensworth. Steal away, steal away, horse. Ladies and gentlemen, when we get to Allensworth, we will be making multiple stops to let people off in every car. The platform will not be big enough to fit the entire train. Again, we will be making multiple stops. There's no official platform here, just a slab of concrete. The stop at Colonel Allensworth State Historic Park is only for special occasions, like Juneteenth, or if a group makes a special request to Amtrak. Just beyond the state park is the town, population 500. It doesn't have any stores or stoplights, there's no grocery store or any other shops, and the closest hotel is 20 minutes away. Maxine and I get off the train. Oh, I'm just blessed, 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 the anticipation. I see the promised land, oh my God. I can only imagine what they saw, a blank slate, and how they created this. I just imagine what it was. Every building in the park is preserved to look like it did in 1908, most with nearby structures that were once outhouses. Hi, hi, come on in. Yes, the Carter initials and a, one of the desks. Right, yeah. At the old schoolhouse, there are rows of wooden desks, each with a small chalkboard. We walk in to look for a name carved into one of the desks. Gloria Harris, Maxine's relative who went to school here in the 1930s. My sister-in-law's family stayed here, and I have a picture of my sister-in-law's mother in front of this building. 
Though we couldn't find the initials in the desk, Maxine confirmed through a school record book that Gloria did attend the school. And this is the basics for making the square head nails. At many of the festivals, the park hires volunteers to showcase what Allensworth was like in 1908, like demonstrating blacksmithing. So before they had the modern nails, this is the way they made the nails. But if you visit the park on a day when there isn't a celebration, it's much quieter. You can't walk into any of the buildings. Just look through the windows. Hello, and welcome to the Colonel Allensworth State Historic Park cell phone tour. And the call a number for some recorded order. history. This busy station was a vital part of town life. Most important, freight shipments supported the town's economy. In December 1913... Over at the portable that serves as the visitor center, I meet park interpreter Gerilyn Oliveira. We like the quiet. <laughs> it's one of the reasons we like working at the park, too. She leads tours of the state park and shares how one of the factors in the town's demise was the expansion of the train line to a nearby town in 1914. They added tracks over to the little community of Alpal, which is west of here by about seven miles. And all the agricultural product was being transported from Alpal instead of Allensworth. So the money started slowing down, dwindling up. And then the train stopped stopping here in 1929. What Geraldine doesn't include is that the train service was rerouted through the neighboring white town of Alpaw. And that, say critics, is one of the problems with the park's version of the history. It's not so much sugarcoating it, they're not saying what actually happened. The park ranger spoke about the history of the community, but he spoke more about the type of corsets women wore during that time. I felt uh, insulted. Uh, promote history. Promote it, promote the history, promote the culture, and help people see it for themselves. Just promote the history. Dennis Hudson and Denise Kadara are twins and Allensworth residents who moved here in the 1970s with their mom. She was a Black activist who wanted to preserve Allensworth's legacy. Now they're in their 60s. Dennis is an Army veteran and farmer, and Denise has years of experience as a city planner. They're both active with the Allensworth Progressive Association. They feel like the stories they've heard park rangers tell about their town don't give the full picture. The version of Allensworth history that emphasizes what a beautiful Black utopian town this used to be, a self-sufficient, joyful place. They had a library book exchange, books from all over the state, not just black communities, but from all over the state were, were coming here because education was important. Dennis and Denise are concerned the official park narrative doesn't explain the structural reasons why the town didn't survive. The downfall of Allensworth happened. The railroad spur was diverted to another community. The water was never delivered as the contracts agreed. Black farmers also had to pay almost five times as much as white farmers for land. You know, any way that you can keep a community down, it seems like Allensworth has had to deal with that. The more I talk to Dennis and Denise, the more it becomes clear that the demise of what Allensworth used to be is the result of a series of actions by state and local powers. A town squeezed into submission, a clear result of institutional racism. 
that forced this black community to dwindle and is still making life difficult for the largely Latinx farmworker population of the town today. Everybody wants to live in a community that provides for their essentials, and this is a food desert, and we're trying to change that. This community lacks an economy. We're trying to change that. It lacks an, a tax base. We're trying to change that. And all we want to do here is bring the community back and make it a, a thriving community once again. According to Denise, Allensworth has been battling structural racism for more than 100 years, and one of the clearest examples is that the town still doesn't have safe drinking water. That's something reporter Teresa Cotzerillas has been talking to people in Allensworth about. How would you describe the water situation in Allensworth right now? Not great. <laughs> Horrible. <laughs> oh, it's terrible. It's just difficult sometimes to be without I'm going to hand it off to Teresa now to tell us more about Allensworth's fight for safe drinking water, which continues today. Valeria Contreras keeps a few gallons of bottled water on her back patio, just in case what happened a few months ago happens again. She was out running errands when her neighbors started blowing up her phone. I don't even know how people get my cell phone number, to be honest. You have everybody calling you and upset, like... Where's the water? How come you guys don't notify? Some of them were like, I know I'm past due, but did you guys turn off my water? Valeria makes aguas frescas and specialty dinosaur cakes for a living. She runs her own catering company. And in her spare time, she's also the general manager of Allensworth's water district. There wasn't any water service in town. She had no idea why. And it was her job to fix it. But first she had to flush her toilet with bottled water and drive 20 minutes away to her parents' house to wash some vegetables. You would think it's just water, but it's a necessity, like, to use a restroom, to wash, to do anything. And it's like, I would get up and I'm like, I'm going to do, oh, I can't, I don't have water. Oh. On the day I visit, Valeria's hanging out with Denise Kadara. Denise is here with another one of her siblings, Sherry Hunter. It's a blazing hot afternoon in Allensworth, but no one here seems to mind. I said, when we were growing up, there was no AC. Yeah. You sat in those leather seats, yeah. I said. And, <laughs> yes. and you were happy. <laughs> and I said, Remember, this is a small town, like, just over 500 people. The people who fight to save Allensworth live next door to each other, are sometimes related, and have known each other for years. Valeria used to sell tamales with Sherry and Denise's mom to cover the town's bills. She would tell me, put more meat. I like meat on my tamales. I don't like the masa. <laughs> I, and every time I make tamales, If you want to live in Allensworth and make things better, you wear a lot of hats. And if you want to fight for racial justice, economic justice, or basically any kind of justice in this part of the Central Valley, you need to get into the water business. Sherry's the president of the Allensworth Community Services District, which means she manages Allensworth's water system with Valeria. And Denise isn't just fighting to preserve Allensworth's early Black history. She's also the vice chair of the Central Valley Regional Water Quality Control Board, where she advocates for disadvantaged communities across the region. When the water stopped earlier this year, it turns out the pumps on a few of Allensworth's water wells had failed. The system here is old and prone to breaking. 
And Sherry says it took them a month to completely fix the problem. Water issues have always been an issue here in Allensworth. Those kinds of structural problems are part of why Alan Allensworth's vision for a Black utopia 100 years ago didn't survive. It was all but destroyed by powerful farmers and corporate interests. And water was one of their weapons of choice. Allensworth was promised land that was fertile and water. He was promised water to the community, which they reneged on. In the early 1900s, getting water in Allensworth was pretty simple. Residents had access to a nearby stream. There was a little river, and the water was diverted away. More powerful farmers used it to irrigate their crops and cut off Allensworth's supply. Fortunately, Allensworth had a backup plan, groundwater. And a local white-owned company had already promised to help them drill the wells. But the company just never followed through. It dug fewer than half of the wells it promised Allensworth. The town took the company to court, but the settlement they reached just left them in debt. Meanwhile, the company gave the town a few miles over all the wells they'd agreed to, so they could suck up as much groundwater as they wanted to. The community in that town was white. You do have this sort of separate but unequal system of water provision. Jonathan London is a professor at UC Davis who's spent his career studying this. He says that in the early 1900s, local farmers, almost all of whom were white, were racing to control as much of the state's water as possible. Some corporate interests resorted to illegal behavior. And when communities of color like Allensworth took them to court, they rarely got a fair hearing. It was a really difficult situation getting squeezed by the corporations on one hand in a way that really was racially biased and then having a, a judicial system that was also racially biased. So they, they had really nowhere to turn. And Allensworth was undercut by a racist system in other ways. Remember, local companies tried to prevent Black farmers from buying land. And in 1914, in the middle of all of this, Colonel Alan Allensworth was struck and killed by a motorcycle. The driver was white, and no charges were ever brought against him. As Allensworth's Black residents started moving away, Latinx farm workers moved in. And it's not hard to see why. The town's quiet and welcoming, and the water that Allensworth does have, it tastes unusually great. A few people here went out of their way to tell me this. They say their tap water's delicious, but that they haven't had a drink from it in years. Sherry says she and her family used to love it. But come to find out, the water was highly contaminated with arsenic. Arsenic is tasteless, odorless, colorless, and extremely toxic. You can increase your risk of cancer just by drinking trace amounts of it over time. And in Allensworth, the arsenic in some of their wells is roughly 15 times the legal limit. I'm the one to have to oversee that that water is drinkable. Um, but I'm 66 years old, and I need to be concerned about my health. So I don't drink it. 
Arsenic's a naturally occurring contaminant in the Central Valley, and state officials have known about Allensworth's arsenic since at least the 1960s. But for decades, they didn't clearly communicate to the people who live here just how dangerous it was. Denise and Sherry say they found out the water was toxic in the 90s. And by then, some residents had been drinking it all their lives. And nobody told them there was a lot of arsenic in that water. And this kind of water crisis, it's happening all over the state. Nearly a million Californians face an increased risk of cancer, kidney problems, and other health crises because their water isn't safe to drink. A lot of it is contaminated by arsenic or by pollution from corporate farms. And the communities that are suffering from this, many of them are the same black and brown communities who've been undercut by racist systems and left with a few bad wells. And because of the drought, some of those wells are starting to go dry. Sherry and Denise say Allensworth has a motto, the town that refuses to die. But they know that if they're going to save Allensworth and its history, they need to solve its water crisis. So Sherry, Denise, Valeria, and other Black and Latinx leaders in town have come up with a game plan, a way that Allensworth can thrive again. You may want to stand clear. Oh. Check this out. Yeah. It's pumping the water out. Right now, the only arsenic-free water in Allensworth comes from a small spigot in the center of town. Denise's husband, Coyote, is kind of the mastermind behind this. He gives me a tour. These are source hydro panels. There are two solar panels a few feet away from the spigot and you can hear their mechanical buzz beneath the squabbling of nearby chickens. The solar panels are powering a hydropanel system, machines that suck ambient moisture out of the air. You hear the hum in there. Those are motors running, powered by the sun. After exhausting their other options, Allensworth is getting creative and siphoning water out of the sky. The town installed two panel prototypes next to its community center last year, and community leaders plan to install two panels at every home in town. This technology is expensive, and each hydro panel produces only about a gallon of water a day. But to Sherry, the panels are a lot better than nothing. It may not be a lot of water, but it would be enough to cook and enough to drink. The panels are also a stopgap measure, while Allensworth works on longer-term solutions, like piloting an experimental arsenic removal technology with UC Berkeley's Gadgill Laboratory. The tech is new, but promising. And the whole state might benefit from the solutions that Allensworth is coming up with. The drought's getting worse. Some communities have run out of water completely. Groundwater supplies are dwindling or contaminated. So politicians and water experts are looking to towns like this one for ideas about how to fix things. But in practice, Allensworth is really doing all of this on their own, without much help from the state. 
all this futuristic technology that could help save their town, it's the result of cobbled together grant funding and a group of black and brown residents working around the clock, unpaid for years to make it happen. This same committed group of volunteers puts on Allensworth's annual Juneteenth celebration. And Teresa and I were both there this year. That's right. We were both out with our tape recorders in 105 degree heat, sweating over cups of lemonade. And the local food boots with watermelon and freshly made mint and strawberry smoothies. Did you try the smoothie? I didn't, but I saw that the blender was powered by a bicycle at a booth run by a coalition of black and brown farmers. We have this amazing solar power, pedal power bike that our youth will actually blend the smoothies on. There were also a lot of booths showcasing projects related to Allensworth's water crisis. A dehydrated group of scientists and grad students have set up shop by the old schoolhouse. I see Gadgill Labs over there. I know UC Berkeley's here. I know USC is here. You guys are USC. We earned our freedom. I mean, died for our freedom. Over at the barbecue stand, I got hot links and collard greens and started talking to a woman named Rhonda Williams. I hope, I hope with all my heart that I see some progress in my lifetime. She's one of the people who was on that special Amtrak train I took down from the Bay Area. She tells me she and her husband spent the ride reading the 500-page report from the State Reparations Task Force, which mentions Allensworth multiple times. Right here in my backpack. It's in the backpack. <laughs> printed version of the report. The printed yeah. version. Wow. Yes. So I'm reading out. She's like, been thinking about how reparations could change things here in Allensworth, a town the colonel founded as a safe haven for black people to lead their own community. But I would like to see it look like an actual thriving town. I think that would be an excellent form of reparations. That would bring it full circle because that was his vision. But some of the people who live here aren't sure how reparations can truly compensate them for the loss of water and wealth in Allensworth. Some of that damage is permanent. It's not like they're going to get back the groundwater that was sucked out from under them by their more powerful neighbors. Farmers like Dennis Hudson aren't so sure if reparations will really make a difference. It sounds like a good idea, but I just really wonder. It's really heartfelt. Uh, If you owe me a hundred dollars, and you want to give me a dime, is is that really reparations? The Reparations Task Force is still working to come up with a plan to calculate financial compensation for people harmed by the lingering impact of slavery and how state parks might better share this history. One of the things that I will be working on, along with the Black Caucus as a priority next year, is Allensworth. State Senator Stephen Bradford is a member of the Reparations Task Force and the chair of the Legislative Black Caucus. Not only is that an historical town that was taken from African Americans, but it has to be archived. People don't understand the importance of Allensworth. One thing he's already been able to do? Work with town activists like Dennis and Denise and the Allensworth Progressive Association to get $40 million allocated for the town and a new park visitor center in the 2022 state budget. But that money is not part of the official work of the statewide reparations task force. 
Another thing that could focus more attention on Allensworth's history and its challenges today is if the Reparations Task Force holds a meeting here. Some members have been pushing for that, so the public can learn more about this town that was envisioned as a Black utopia. A self-sufficient place where people could get educated, build their own economy, and even find joy. was Lakshmi Sarah, who covers reparations for KQED, and Teresa Katsarillis, a staff writer and producer with the Food and Environment Reporting Network. Their story about Allensworth was edited by me and by our senior editor, Victoria Maleon. This episode was produced in collaboration with the Food and Environment Reporting Network, a nonprofit investigative journalism outlet. Special thanks to Sam Fromarts and Elizabeth Reut. The California Report magazine is a production of KQED in San Francisco. Our director is Susie Racho. Brendan Willard is our sound engineer, and our fabulous intern Jessica Carissa chose the music for this episode. Special thanks this week to Otis R. Taylor, Jr. And I'm Sasha Coca. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford HealthCare, where their greatest reward is a healthy patient. The Wesley Foundation, recognizing young social entrepreneurs through the Wesley Prize for Young Innovators of California. Information about how to apply is available at wesley.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute. Coming this fall, the launch of research vessel FALCOR-2, advancing the frontiers of ocean science and exploration. On the web at schmidtocean.org. Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest.